From New York City, welcome to the OpenFin MVP podcast. I'm your host, Mazi Dar. They didn't like technical founders. They wanted an MBA at the helm. They wanted someone from the business side. And in fact, the less you knew technically, the better. Because coming out of the dot-com bust, it was sort of, wow, we really got led astray by these people. We need, you know, and they actually use this term, we need gray hair in there. And by the way, I had not one gray hair in my head at the time. That was David Temkin. He's a development leader and entrepreneur with two decades of experience designing, building, and commercializing technology products at Apple, AOL, Brave, Google, and two companies he founded, Laszlo Systems and Cola. David joins me to talk about his experiences as an engineer, product manager, and entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. Hi, David. How are you? I'm good, Mazi. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Where are you joining us from today? I am in San Francisco, right about in the middle of the city. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate your time and it's great to catch up with you. And we have a lot to talk about today. I thought we would start at the beginning of your career. And I was noticing as I was doing my research on this, that you have a dual degree from Brown University in computer science and history. And I had to chuckle because I have a dual degree in computer science and French literature. And somehow we both picked the computer science part of our backgrounds to pursue as a career. But how did you decide not to go into the field of history? Oh, that wasn't even a consideration. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was intellectually fascinating. But I'll tell you, what I actually spent my time on in college was, yeah, the computer science. But then I was executive editor of the daily newspaper there. And so that was more my, you know, words and liberal arts side getting expressed. History was, I'm learning about this. It's super interesting. I just got riveted and hooked on it freshman year, but I never considered it as a career. Journalism, I did. Absolutely. That's super interesting. I have a similar interest in journalism. So we we have a lot in common. You went pretty early on into high tech working at Apple And I'm interested to hear what brought you to Apple, how you decided to work there, and also maybe tell us a little bit about what it was like back then when you started working there. Yeah, definitely. I'll rewind a little bit. I mean, my first exposure to personal computers, to computers at all, my father was an engineering professor. And I think when I was about in seventh grade, one day he brought home an Apple II Plus. And I thought that was about the coolest thing in the world. And you could make it show some graphics on the screen and the graphics could move and you could make it play audio. And I mean, all super primitive by today's standards. But it was, you know, kind of a life changer for me. I just sort of loved that. And I came to really get into all the details of the Apple. And I later bought myself the first version of the Macintosh. So I was, a you know, okay, Apple fanboy from way, way back. And when sometime after college, a number of years after college, I had the opportunity to go work there, that was like a sort of a dream come true. And wow, you can go work at Apple on this brand new platform. And, you know, and I think I was like 25, 26 at the time. And um, yeah, I was very, very excited about it, despite the, oh my God, I got to move to California and what's that like? And am I really going to fit in and all that other stuff? And it was quite an experience. I, you know, I had no idea what to expect from the outside, but compared to anything that I'd seen elsewhere, it seemed incredibly brilliant people to the point of being intimidating, whose names I'd heard. They worked on, some of the people were on the original Macintosh team, like the software lead from, 
Newton was, you know, one of the two people who wrote the Mac Finder, which is, you know, core to the Mac experience, even after all these years. Yeah. And so I was just like, oh my God, look at the size, scale, and scope of this. And we were building not only, you know, the way you would build software right now or hardware devices, you would kind of pick pre-built components, pre-built software, pre-built hardware components. You would reuse existing models of, well, how do people interact with X? This was kind of different. What, you know, what we were doing at the time over there was custom hardware, custom silicon, new user interface, new input model. You would, you would write on this device with a pen. It was the size of like, not, not a smartphone, well, maybe a giant smartphone, uh, more maybe like the size of a tablet, a small tablet today. Custom user interface, custom operating system, custom programming language, all of this, every layer of the system was custom. And it was kind of unbelievable. All these people working on all these different things, as I said, intimidating and also chaotic. <laughs> that was my initial impression of it. And you worked on Newton's user interface, correct? That's right. I was an engineer working on the Newton's user interface, a little on-screen components. We called it the Newton toolbox, pieces like how do the menus appear and how do you do correction of misrecognized text? Like you write the word other and it comes up with something other than other. Or the virtual keyboard that shows up on the screen, which turned out to be a lot more important than we wanted it to be because the handwriting recognition wasn't perfect. These, these sorts of reusable components were basically what I was working on. That's so cool. And it's amazing that, you know, years later, these are topics that we're still thinking about at OpenFin. You moved from Apple, you spent some time working at Excite, and then you started your own company called Laszlo Systems. Can you tell us about Laszlo and what gave you the idea to start the company and also what it was like starting a company back in 2000? Yeah, definitely. Laszlo came out of the work that I'd been doing at, at the previous company called Excite at Home. And that was a combination of a very early, as we would then call it, an internet portal, basically a selection of online services delivered through a web browser and an ISP. We were doing cable. This is the first kind of cable broadband for consumers. And that was my first exposure to the web as someone actively involved in creating web applications, online applications, and so on. Up to that point, I'd been at Apple, and it was on-device. It was native, compiled, even built into the device's ROM. So this was, the web was really different. It was this whole instant publishing model. Everyone can see it, super large scale, very, very exciting, both as a medium and as a kind of a technical system, as a platform. And one of the things that, you know, that I was seeing there was that you could deliver these pages on the web and people had built applications out of these one-page experiences, one page at a time. This is a long, long time ago. And the way we had the web, it was dial-up. It was very slow. It wasn't broadband. So if you can imagine your bandwidth, and we see this on phones sometime, going down to like one one-hundredth of what you might be used to at home right now. Very slow. And there were things like, so you would go in. They had webmail. Webmail originated, I don't know, around 1997, let's say, with Hotmail. And you go in and you with each, I'm going to read a message, click, new page comes down from the server, and it just looks like a document. And then you'd say, okay, go back to my inbox, new page comes down, really slow right. user experience, nothing, you know, nothing like apps. That's what, you know, that was the landscape back then. 
And the opportunity we saw with Laszlo that I identified coming out of this, you know, having done native applications and really slick native user interfaces, at least slick for that day, and then seeing, hey, we've got this incredible open expression medium of the web, but it kind of sucks from a look and feel user experience performance point of view. And Laszlo was based on this thought of what if you were able to build, engineers were able to build web applications that had the richness, the interactivity, and the performance of a desktop application, but a user could just go there by typing a URL and hitting return. That was the core you know, starting point for Laszlo, if that makes sense. It absolutely does make sense because that is the entire thesis behind OpenFin, which is how we met. And I'm smiling now because I remember seeing your background. We were first introduced by a mutual friend, Ty Ahmed Taylor. And I remember when he introduced us and I looked at your background and I looked at Laszlo, I thought, wow, David was doing this, what we're trying to do now, way back in 2000. And once we got to know each other, I just found your entire experience doing this way back when really fascinating. And it helped inform how we thought about things as well as we started to work together. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But after Laszlo, you also spent some time working at AOL. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? Right. I started at AOL in 2010. And immediately before that, I'd been briefly, well, for about a year at Palm, where we were doing yet another mobile device based on web technology. AOL had just spun out of Time Warner, and it was under the leadership of Tim Armstrong, who had a background in media and ads coming out of Google. And, you know, he was kind of like, well, we're nowhere on mobile. Mobile is becoming a big thing. So by 2010, you know, context-wise, the iPhone had been out three years. And apps, the first apps were released. The App Store was 2008. Android had just hit maybe 2009 or gone mainstream 2009. That was the context. But at that time... AOL was way behind. It didn't have kind of interactive apps. It had maybe one, two apps that were credible, and then a broad span of brands and the like that had no reasonable mobile presence, either on the the web or as an app. And so they were kind of like, well, we want to go into the era of smartphones. And when I joined, I think they had something along the lines of, you know, 5% of their aggregate usage was coming in from smartphones. And by the time I left at the end of 2013, it was like 30-something percent. That was a really a really great experience because we had greenfield development. We were able to say, I'm going to take these various brands, whatever they were, movie phone or Engadget or you know, even MapQuest and upgrade them and make them really great mobile apps or mobile web products. And that you had wide open ideas for what could you do on the user experience, on the technology, how do you monetize? And we also had runway to do things like, let's invent entirely new products under new brands for mobile and tablet. So in spite of the fact that AOL's reputation at the time was, oh, this is one of those old line companies doing old line things, we did a lot of innovative things there and we got a lot of users on board with AOL properties. So I I really enjoyed that, I have to say. And it sounds like that that experience that you had there also helped inform your next entrepreneurial venture, which was the company Cola. 
And I'd love to hear about, you know, how you decided to start that company and also maybe dive a little bit deeper into the whole entrepreneurship experience that you had there, you know, raising money and, you know, all those things that many folks who listen to this show are working on themselves. Right. Actually, you know, before we get deeply into COLA, it might be worth talking about what the entrepreneurial experience was like in 2001 and then compare it to what it was like in 2015 for oh, COLA. Yeah. In 2001, first of all, the market was just coming through the dot-com bust. The investors were kind of highly skeptical of anything consumer-related on the internet. They were of the view of the internet is dead as a consumer medium. This is going to be for enterprises only. All products need to be battleship gray. Apple proved that user experience doesn't matter because Microsoft won. These were all assertions I heard from investors at that time. And the other thing that was true at that time was they didn't like technical founders. They wanted an MBA at the helm. They wanted someone from the business side. And in fact, the less you knew technically, the better. Because <laughs> coming out of the dot-com bust, it was sort of wow, we really got led astray by these people. We need, you know, and they actually use this term, we need gray hair in there. And by the way, I had not one gray hair in my head at the time. So fast forward to 2015. 2015, everything's about consumer. Everyone being funded, the founder had to be technical. Gray hair, impermissible. And everything about user experience. So <laughs> you could not create a, you know, a bigger contrast there. The other thing that was different was in 2001, you know, we raised a immediately Series A, $9 million. That was basically the first money brought in. Before we had a product, before we had, you know, product market fit, all of those things. That's how they did business then. Right. It took a lot to get that round raise. We had to build prototypes, we had to we had to get in a, you know, a whole team working for free for 9 months and oh, not to mention the company was funded. The Series A was closed about two weeks after 9-11. And that, because we had enough momentum with the investors, they said, all right, let's just move forward with this. But we were one of four deals globally, four VC deals closed that month. It was wow. a different era. Moving forward to 2015 with Cola, Cola was based this idea. I mean, a lot of things in my career have been sort of two-sided. It's a consumer app, but it's also a platform. And you know, you saw that with... Newton, right? You're building user interface components and a user experience, and you're doing it through means that third-party developers can use to build applications. And, you know, we had the same thought with Cola. We were looking at the world at that time, said, all of this activity on mobile devices has moved over to messaging apps. And what if messaging apps became more of a platform where users actually did a wide variety of activities within the messaging app, not just chatting and sending photos, but doing things like scheduling a meeting or taking a poll or sharing my location or managing a shared to-do list, all these other things. And we built a I got a very, very accomplished team there. We had two people from the original iPhone team on that one technical, one from the user experience team. You know, we had a bunch of other people going, you know, that I'd known from earlier in my career. And we had a incredible demo. It was the kind of thing you would show to someone and, and they would instantly say, oh, I would use that. Yeah, absolutely. It was a prototype. It worked. And rarely do you get that, by the way. You get all sorts of you show a typically a prototype to someone and they start asking a bunch of questions. You get the vibe. Well, I don't know. This kind of, this isn't going to really catch on with consumers, but we were getting kind of all green lights 
it looked great, all this other stuff. But here was the deal. Because of how things were done in 2015 and how they're done now, you would raise at that time, the model was this, and at this time too, you'd raise a modest amount of money, a seed round, much less than the $9 million that we raised in 01 as an upfront round. You'd raise a seed round and you'd need to prove, okay, I've got product market fit, we have growth in place, stuff's happening, and you should feel confident in raising, in putting in money for the Series A. The, the investors should. But Here's the thing, you know, the expected traction for a consumer messaging app, which is how we kind of position this product for better or for worse, was you you need to be well on your way to a million users before you would raise a series A around this. Otherwise, right. there were a million consumer messaging apps, roadkill all over the place. And while we had a very compelling app, and I want to thank you, Mozzie, for investing in it, and I want to apologize for losing your money. No apology necessary. <laughs> Seriously, I'm I'm grateful. And the the investors were wonderful by the way. And they understood that these are these are difficult things. They're not all going to be wins. Some of these investments turn into mega wins, and that's kind of the the angel investor approach. But it was very very difficult. We couldn't do this without really releasing the product. It was just very difficult to get users to switch to another product. Not so much they didn't want to try it. They did want to try it. But if it doesn't interoperate perfectly with the messaging products that your friends are using, you've got a problem. Right. And we kind of set ourselves up for a difficult situation because we decided to build out the app and the platform and the, the developer APIs and all of this in advance of massive consumer adoption. We felt that the developer piece was an adequate differentiator. We had a great lead investor in this round, by the way. He's a very sophisticated guy. I'm sure everyone here has heard of him, Naval Ravikant. And that was his belief, too. The developer piece truly differentiated this, an extensible messaging app. And this is before we had, like, you know, iMessage apps and the like out of Apple. Nevertheless, the network effects proved really hard. And I just wish we'd had, we'd sequenced it differently or that we'd raised a little more money so that we could have addressed that particular issue over time. Yeah, for sure. Look, I remember seeing the prototype and using it and I thought it was a fantastic product and, you know, uh, which is why I decided to invest in it. And you're absolutely right. The amount of money you raise early on nowadays and, and the kind of traction that you're expected to show is pretty significant. And at OpenFin, we're operating in the enterprise space with a kind of different uh, different targets for product market fit. But yeah, if you're in the consumer space, as you said, you're, you need to be you know tracking to a million users, and and if you're you know doing that and building a platform and all the other things you described, that you know that can be a massive, massive challenge. And it's it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, you know the. It's one of the, the joys of entrepreneurship is the the highs and you know getting past the lows. Also, I think it's probably a good time for us to talk a little bit about OpenFin because during this period, we had been introduced and you had joined as the independent director on our board. And this was right after we raised our own Series A round. And I loved having you involved in the company because you brought this tech perspective and a West Coast perspective that you know frankly we we lacked we had you know finance and east coast wisdom and cred in spades but but really not the 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 tech side of things and i was thinking recently about how we started calling openfin the operating system of finance 
and remembering that you were the one who encouraged us to to really go for it. And it struck me at the time because, you know, we were talking with with folks about our messaging and I had people telling us, well, you know, it's not really an operating system. We had all sorts of other words we were using. And I remember you saying very distinctly that it's hard enough to get people to hear your message. If it's a muddled message, they're they're definitely not going to understand what it is that you're doing. And I appreciate, you know, I'm I'm really glad that you gave us that advice and that we took it. Can you talk a little bit about that? That you know, the the messaging and the owning your space and and how you think about that problem. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. I mean, when when I saw your product and heard your vision, I mean, I said, wow, that is that is spot on. I love this. This is kind of in the same domain as Laszlo, but they found a really clever application where this can grow and get some traction. And you know, so I'm looking at this. I'm like, okay. OpenFin is in a position where it's it's trying to create a wholly new system to create applications for the finance financial desktop and make those applications like almost like yeah you can browse to a URL instant install instant update th- these sorts of at- attributes and a suite of applications that interoperate and all of these things and there's a lot of complexity with software how do you label something engineers tend to want to be very precise in how they talk about things the problem with being very precise is that it always ends up being caveated and detailed and you miss sort of the broad metaphor that is easiest to get an idea across we struggled a lot about this with with Laszlo. What what do you even call these interactive apps that you can browse to by going to a URL? And we rotated through this term and this term and this term. And and frankly, they weren't great. I mean, I wish we'd been less precise. I wish we'd done something that resonated a little more with kind of ordinary users, even though it was a developer product. And I remember you and I talking, there had been a push or some excitement in the in the market about app stores at the time. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, there had been like, well, we could call it, you know, we call it an app store. The problem with the app store was, at least in my mind, was, well, that brings to mind all, you know, a mobile device, consumer apps, and all these things that are sort of not really an app store. And to me, the term operating system seemed to resonate a little more closely with your vision, an operating system in in the specific sense, which is, I think, how, you know, a lot of people think of it. Basically, an operating system runs applications. I can install applications onto an operating system. An application provides a consistent foundation for those applications. Okay. Not in the sense of an operating system contains, you know, uh, drivers and memory management and, you know, hardware interfaces, none of that, right? Um, So it's imprecise, but we felt at the time, I remember that discussion and it seemed like that resonated with you. I mean, none of these things are perfect, but if you feel like that's, you know, that's help, that's awesome. And I do think it's a good metaphor for what do, you're doing. And you have to come up with metaphors with software. Otherwise it's just, it is what you say it is, right? You, right. you know, it, it's, there's nothing other than that. What, everyone's going to read the source code? No. Right. And yeah, and it's, you know, it's interesting nowadays that people are using that term metaphorically for all sorts of things, right? The operating system of identity, the operating system of, you know, fill in the blank. And I think people, people get that now because, 
know, operating systems like iOS and Android, you know, run our lives. And people can sort of intuitively understand that, oh, these are these are apps that run in a common environment and 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 that's what it's really all about. So yeah, so that was for us, it was a super useful, terrific advice. And it helped us as we went to that and we started talking about, you know, OpenFin as iOS for financial desktops. For the first time, I saw folks that weren't super technical immediately understanding what we're trying to do and saying, oh, we're trying to bring the the same delightful end user experience that we have on our phones to the financial desktop. And everyone immediately got that, uh, even though, as you said, at a base technical level, that, that wording may not be entirely precise. So yeah, no, that, that, that was really important at the time and continues to be important for us as we're, we're you know, continuing on our mission to provide this foundational layer within financial services. Now, you moved from COLA to a super interesting company that I was also an early investor in called Brave that I think a, a number of people know. It's still run by Brendan Ike, who's the uh, credited with inventing JavaScript. Uh, tell us about how you got to Brave and you know what, what the mission was there and what that experience was like. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd mentioned earlier that one of my areas, two areas of interest, one is a lot of passion for the web as a medium and as a technical platform. And also, I've consistently been attracted to these, you know, dual-sided, it's a consumer product, it's a developer platform, and browsers are squarely in that category. And I remember catching up with Brendan Ike, and I hadn't seen him in a while. I met him many years ago when I was doing Laszlo because that we were working with Mozilla, and it was really back in those early days when we were trying to upgrade the web as a medium. And I caught up with him, you know, not long, maybe six months before uh, I was in, you know, looking for another thing to do. And he was telling me, well, we've got a privacy-oriented web browser. Privacy meaning, privacy means a lot of things. But in the case of Brave, it's very much focused on as you browse the web, you're essentially being tracked from site to site with the purpose of presenting you ads that are relevant to you. But this tracking makes a lot of people uncomfortable, and it's under a lot more scrutiny right now from a lot of different angles. And this is something that Brendan said, you know, we're, we're in an era now where people are much more conscious of privacy, and this is 2017, and people care about it. But if you think about it from, you know, one point of view, there are these things called ad blockers, and you can block, well, am I being tracked? I'm going to block all the ads unattractive to me. I've got a great deal of affinity for publishers and journalists. I mentioned I've done it personally myself. I've never felt that was a awesome approach. Brendan's approach was a lot more ambitious, a lot more sophisticated. He was saying, well, we're going to stop the user from being tracked, okay, which in turn means the publishers aren't really getting any money from your page visits. That's sort of a problem. But he went a step farther and said, I'm going to replace this with an alternate model where and this is complicated, but I'll say it anyway, the user who is browsing can opt into Brave's ad system and say, yeah, do I want to receive ads? Sure. Those ads are private, and we can talk about what that means. And the other thing is that the ads, as you see them as a user, you get a certain amount of cryptocurrency per ad view. That cryptocurrency that you as a user own is automatically distributed to the websites and to the content creators as you browse the web. You can go change those parameters, but 
by default, if you turn on that ad system, there is a, a real cut for publishers and there's a place for advertising. I think there's a place for advertising in the world. Users find it useful. Advertisements that are relevant are important things and marketing is an important part of the world we live in. And so, but Brendan's solution was very, very ambitious, well thought out, sophisticated, and based on real principles. It wasn't just, hey, let's go do a couple things here and there. Very interesting thinker. And I thought, wow, okay. And he was hiring. At that point, the company had raised a seed round and had raised a certain amount of money from what we came to call an ICO, a initial coin offering or a token sale in the cryptocurrency world. Yeah. At the time, if I remember correctly, it was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, that, that had been done. Yeah, I think it was among the biggest, although soon afterward, those ICOs started getting much larger in scale during kind of crypto summer within the, the year that followed. Right. But, you know, a significant amount of money, seed stage, only about 30 employees. And by the way, no one in product management. And the opportunity was, hey, would you like to join as chief product officer? I thought that was super intriguing. The whole proposition, the cryptocurrency angle, the publishers, the advertisers, the privacy. And I privacy was something I've always been interested in, but I never felt there was a significant consumer demand for it. But in 2017, the sentiment toward tech had kind of shifted, this, this distrust. And it seemed to me that Brave had an opportunity to say, well, we're going to establish a more trusted product that allows you to, yes, you're still going to be marketed to, but it's fair. There's something in it for you. There's something in it for publishers and so on. That's fascinating. And, and something happened, I think, between 2015 and 2017 to change that sentiment around privacy and we're we're still we're still living with that today before we talk a little bit about your new role at Google we had Brendan speak at a couple of FinJS events and he's super colorful and just a fascinating guy what was it like working with him okay so Brendan is a brilliant guy i i don't think i'm ever going to work for someone who is that just raw smart and i don't just mean like He's smart on some particular minor topics. He knows a lot of things about a lot of things. He's sort of a polymath. And he can work at the level of, you know, I'll call it 30,000 foot CEO level. Here's an incredible vision. We're going to lay it out and, you know, all that kind of thing. The other thing's very unusual about him and atypical of a CEO is, you know, there's a 30,000 foot level, but he also works at the three millimeter level. Like, what is this line of code? And you didn't handle, you know, null pointer exception and look at this thing and this, yeah. Very, very interesting experience. And he would be, you know, we were run on Slack, very much the company who operated on Slack and on Zoom. And Brandon was involved kind of at all levels. It's fascinating. I mean, I'm even talking about finance and, you know, right. real details around accounting, which, by the way, is complicated when you have cryptocurrency and two corporate entities or three corporate entities. Very brilliant guy, super interesting. And like I said, just an unusual experience. That whole company was an unusual experience. I mean, you think about the kind of people that are interested in privacy and cryptocurrency and are highly principled about you know those goals that's a very bespoke group of people in a very particular way of thinking that is fascinating and so i guess that background in privacy is what interested you in the the new role that you are in at google now can you tell us a little bit about you know the role and what you're doing now 
Right. So I just started at Google and, you know, this is very, very early days, but I can tell you what the role is. I'm within the Google Ads organization and which is, you know, the at least the product side of it. This is the the team that manages the the products that are Google's ad systems that are a big part of, you know, what what powers sort of the uh, free web. And not only that, but free apps as well. Uh, across Google sites and other sites and other apps. And I am responsible for, I'm within a larger team called Ad Privacy and Safety, and I'm responsible specifically for the product management side of ad privacy. And ad privacy, again, it's coming down to, you know, people are viewing this differently. And Google has serious commitments to increase user trust. And they have a very, they have a very trusted brand. And yet there's all this discussion about advertising privacy, advertising as something that's kind of unsafe, unhealthy, privacy violating. Google has a strong interest in making, first of all, continuing to sustain the free web. This is a big deal. I mean, you think about the web right now, and you know you can remember these days. The web is an amazing resource. You can find almost anything you want. You can do it for free as a user. All those services available for free. In the 90s, that would have been just simply an unbelievable proposition. And a lot of that is made possible by advertising. And so... There is a tremendous benefit that comes with scalable internet scale advertising. And Google has a strong consumer brand, and Google is very committed to making advertisements for the user understandable, transparent, controllable. Why did I receive this? How can I control it? You've probably seen bits like that on the web right yeah, now. Yeah, for sure. But it's just an amazing opportunity. And you know, I think of that as the, the sorts of things that attracted me to Brave in terms of improvements to the ecosystem. You can think of that is what attracted me to Google, but operating at a much, much larger scale and a much more significant impact. Well, that's such an amazing time to be in the privacy space. It, you know, We've got an election coming up and all sorts of issues that people are thinking about. And for you to be in the middle of that at, at Google must be a really, really exciting time. And what a journey from, from, from Apple to AOL to starting a couple of your own companies and, and, and now at Google. David, before we, before we close out here, I'd love to hear a little bit about something that you're doing while we're all working from home and, and locked down, something maybe in your personal life that is keeping you engaged. Well, first of all, I'm immersing myself into a new job, so that's very time-consuming. But uh, other than that, what can I say? Learning how to make cocktails. And one cocktail I've learned how to make recently, and my wife and I have come to like it quite a bit, is the aviation. And it's got gin, and it's got creme de violet, and it's got maraschino liqueur. Very fancy ingredients. Tastes great, you know, and helps in the mission of putting on weight, which seems to be inevitable right now. Well, it does sound like an amazing cocktail. David, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And it was really terrific to catch up. Thank you, Mozzie. Much appreciated. I'd like to thank David for joining us and you for listening. John Siracusa is our show's producer. You can also hear John interview fintech founders and the VCs who fund them on the Bank On It podcast. Join us next time as we speak with innovators and thought leaders in finance and technology on the OpenFin MVP podcast. Thank you.